this is the voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast. For further podcasts, go to the Narrated Puritan on SermonAudio.com. In about 1984, I'd been struggling for some time with assurance of salvation, probably in the midst of a three-year awakening. And a friend of mine, I was stationed in the Coast Guard, but he got restationed in Alexandria, Virginia. And he had found an old book in a bookstore. Neither of us had heard of the title, called A Body of Divinity by Thomas Ridgely. And I turned to question 81, called Destitution of Assurance. And I found his answer to the Westminster Catechism, question 81, very, very sound. At the time, the only person that had even heard of Thomas Ridgely that I could talk to was Dr. Robert Martin, who was teaching at Trinity Ministerial Academy in the day in Montville, New Jersey. Now, 40 years later, as I look back on it, the very end of this especially, I have found it one of the most helpful things on this question. Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in a state of grace, and that they shall be saved? And this is his answer. The Catechism's answer first is assurance of grace and salvation not being of the essence of faith. True believers may wait long before they obtain it, and after the enjoyment thereof may have it weakened and intermitted. True manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet are they never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. And it's that last sentence that Thomas Ridgely is really, really helpful with because what is sinking into utter despair, and how can it be maintained that no Christian sinks into utter despair? So today we'll read the answer to this question. Having considered some believers as favored with assurance of their being in a state of grace, we are in this answer led to speak of others who were destitute of it. Here something is supposed, namely, that assurance of grace and salvation is not of the essence of saving faith. Again, some things are inferred from this supposition first, that true believers may wait long before they obtain assurance. Secondly, that after the enjoyment of assurance it may be weakened and intermitted through bodily distempers, sins, temptations, and divine desertions. Yet thirdly, that they are never left without the support of the Spirit of God, and so are kept from sinking into utter despair. Topic number one, assurance, not of the essence of faith. As to the thing supposed in this answer, namely that assurance of grace and salvation is not of the essence of faith, many persons who in other respects explain the nature of faith in such a way as is unexceptionable assert that assurance is of the essence of it. Now in this, we cannot but think they express themselves very unwarily. At least they ought to have more clearly discovered what they mean by faith and what by assurance than they appear to do. If my assurance, being of the essence of faith, they mean that no one has saving faith but he who has an assurance of his own salvation, they not only assert what is contrary to the experience of many believers, but they lay a stumbling block in the way of weak Christians 
who will be induced to conclude that because they cannot tell whether they are true believers or not, they are destitute of saving faith. On this account, it is necessary for us to inquire how far the opinion in question is to be allowed, and in what respect it is to be denied. It is certain that there are many excellent theologians in our own and foreign nations who have defined faith by assurance, which is supposed so essential to it that without it no one can be reckoned a believer. It may be they were inclined thus to express themselves in consequence of the sense in which they understood several texts of Scripture, in which assurance seems to be considered as a necessary ingredient in faith. So it is said, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Again, the Apostle speaks of assurance as a privilege which belonged to the church to which he wrote. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Elsewhere as well, he so far blames their not knowing themselves, or their being destitute of this assurance, that he will hardly allow those to have any faith who are without it. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? From such expressions as these, they who plead for assurance being of the essence of faith are ready to conclude that they who are destitute of it can hardly be called true believers. But that this manner may be set in a true light, we must distinguish between assurance of the object, namely the great and important doctrines of the gospel being of the essence of faith, and assurance of our interest in Christ being so. The former we will not deny, for no one can come to Christ who is not assured that he will receive him, or trust in him till he is fully assured that he is able to save him. But the latter we must take leave to deny, for if no one is a believer, but he who knows himself to be so, then he who doubts of his salvation must be concluded to be no believer. This is certainly a very discouraging doctrine to weak Christians, and according to it, when we lose the comfortable persuasion we once had of our interest in Christ, we're bound to question all former experiences and to determine ourselves to be in a state of unregeneracy. But to do this would be an effect to withhold from God the glory of that powerful work which was formerly wrought in us, which when we thought to be a work of grace, if indeed they mean by assurance, being of the essence of faith, that an assurance of our interest in Christ is essential to the highest or most comfortable acts of faith, meaning by this doctrine that we ought to be incited to press after assurance if we have not attained it, and that God is very much glorified by it, and a foundation laid for our offering, praise to him for the experience we have had of his grace, which a doubting Christian cannot be said to do, we have nothing to say against it, or if they should assert that doubting is no ingredient in faith, nor a commendable excellency in a Christian, we do not oppose them. All we are contending for is that there may be a direct act of faith, or a faith of reliance in those who are destitute of assurance that they are in a state of grace. This is a thing supposed in this answer when it is said that assurance is not of the essence of faith, that this may be better understood 
and we be led into the sense of scriptures, such as those just mentioned, and others of a similar kind, we describe believers as having assurance. Let it be considered that there are many scriptures in which believers are said to have such an assurance as respects only the object of faith, namely the person, offices, and glory of Christ, and the truth and promises of the gospel, an assurance which we do not deny to be of the essence of faith. So the apostle prays for the church that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Elsewhere, he says, our gospel came to you in much assurance. And he exhorts persons to draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Now, it is probable that in these and several other scriptures of similar import, he means no more than an assurance of the object of faith. As for the scriptures where he seems to assert that all who are destitute of this privilege are reprobates, some understand the word which we translate reprobates as signifying only injudicious Christians, and if this be its meaning, the thing which it denotes is not inconsistent with the character of believers. Others, however, with an equal degree of probability, render it disapproved. And so the meaning is, if you know not your own selves that Christ is in you, you are greatly to be blamed or disapproved, especially as your not knowing this proceeds from your neglect of the duty of self-examination by the means of which you have no proof of Christ's being in you, who are so ready to demand a proof of his speaking in his ministers. It does not appear from this text, then, that everyone who endeavors to know that he is in a state of grace by diligent self-examination, but cannot conclude that he is so, must be determined to be destitute of faith, which would necessarily follow from our asserting an assurance of our interest in Christ, is of the essence of saving faith. There are other Bible verses which speak of assurance as a distinguishing character of Christians in general, which are usually brought to prove that assurance is of the essence of faith. Thus, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, we know that we are of God. There are also several places in the New Testament in which the Apostle addresses his discourse to whole churches as having assurance, as well as the grace of faith. Thus, the Apostle Peter speaks of them as loving Christ, believing in him, rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and receiving the end of their faith, even the salvation of their souls, which could hardly be said of them if they were destitute of assurance of their own salvation. However, all that I would infer from these and similar scriptures is that it seems probable that assurance was a privilege more commonly experienced in that age of the church than it is in our day. There may be two reasons assigned for this. First, the change which passed upon them when they were converted was so apparent that it was hardly possible for it not to be discerned. They turned from their dead idols and the practice of the vilest abominations to serve the living God, which two extremes are so opposite that their being brought from the one to the other could not but be remarked by themselves, and consequently more visible to them than if their conversion had been otherwise. The other principal reason is that the church was called at that time to bear a public testimony to the gospel by enduring persecutions of various kinds, and some of them were to resist even unto blood. 
Now that God might prepare them for these sufferings, and that he might encourage others to embrace a faith of the gospel which was then in its infant state, he was pleased to favor them with this great privilege. And it may be hereafter, if God should call the church to endure like trials, that he will in mercy grant him a greater degree of assurance than is ordinarily experienced. Nevertheless, it may be questioned whether those scriptures which speak of assurance as if it were a privilege common to the whole church are not to be understood as applicable to the greater part of them rather than to every individual believer among them. For though the apostle in one of the scriptures before mentioned considers the church at Corinth as enjoying this privilege and is concluding it should go well with them in another world when this earthly tabernacle was dissolved, yet in the same epistle he speaks of some of them as not knowing their own selves that Jesus Christ was in them. The Apostle John also, notwithstanding his saying to the church, we know that we are of God, which argues that many of them had assurance, plainly intimates that all had it not. For he says, The things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Though, too, in another scripture just mentioned, the Apostle Peter speaks to the church to which he writes as having joy unspeakable and full of glory consequent upon their faith, which argues that they had assurance. Yet he exhorts others of them to give diligence to make their calling and election sure, so that these are supposed at that time not to have had it. From all this, it may be concluded that assurance of grace and salvation is not of the essence of saving faith which is the thing supposed in this answer. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 81. Topic number two, assurance may not be soon attained. We proceed to consider the first of those things which are inferred from this supposition, namely, that the believer may wait long before he attains assurance. This appears from daily experience and observation. The sovereignty of God discovers itself in it as much as it does when he makes the ordinances effectual to salvation and giving converting grace to those who attend on them. Some are called early to be made partakers of the salvation which is in Christ, but others late. The same may be said with respect to God's given assurance. Some are favored with this privilege soon after or when they first believe. Others are like those whom the apostle speaks of, who through fear of death, or all their lifetime subject to bondage. Many have often inquired into the state of their souls and been unable to discern any marks or evidences of grace in themselves, whose conversation is such that others cannot but conclude them to be true believers. Their spirits are depressed, doubts and fears prevail, and they tend to make their lives very uncomfortable. They wait, and they pray for the evidence and sense of God's love to them but cannot immediately find it. The state of feeling the psalmist speaks of, either in his own person, or is representing the case of many who had the truth of grace, but not the assurance of it, when he says, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before you. I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer your tears, I am distracted. God allows it to be thus with his people for very wise ends. By this he lets them know that assurance of his love is a special gift and work of the Spirit, without which they may remain destitute of it and cannot take comfort from either former or present experiences. 
Next, assurance. A believer's assurance may be weakened and intermitted. We observe next that they who once enjoyed assurance may have it weakened and intermitted. Whether it may be entirely lost will be considered under a following head when we speak concerning the supports which believers have, and how far they are kept by these from sinking into utter despair. It is one thing to fall from the truth of grace, but another thing to lose a comfortable sense of it. The joy of faith may be suspended when the acts and habits of faith remain firm and unshaken. As the brightest morning may be followed with clouds and tempests, so our clearest discoveries of our interest and the love of God may be followed with the withdrawal of the light of its countenance, and we be left under many discouraging circumstances concerning our state, having lost the assurance we once had. If it be inquired, what is the reason that may be assigned for this? I answer that it must in a great measure be resolved into the sovereignty of God, who will bring its people to heaven which way he pleases. It may take away those comforts which had their first rise from himself, and at the same time none must say, Why have you done this? We may observe some particular reasons, however, which the providence of God points out to us, to which we may in other respects ascribe our lack of assurance. And these may be reduced to four heads, particularly mentioned in this answer. First, the weakening or intermitting of assurance is sometimes occasioned by manifold distempers or bodily diseases. The soul and body are so closely joined to and dependent on each other that the one can hardly suffer without the other feeling it. Hence it is that bodily distempers affect the mind. They excite and they give disturbance to the passions, a circumstance which greatly adds to the uneasiness which follows these distempers. When the spirits are depressed and we are under the prevalence of a melancholy disposition, we are often inclined to think that we are not in a state of grace. And though we were formerly disposed to comfort others in similar cases, we are now unable to take the least encouragement ourselves. All things look black and dismal. Our former hope is reckoned no other than delusive, and we are brought to the very brink of despair. It may also be observed that these sad and melancholy apprehensions concerning our state increase or abate. Is a distemper which gives occasion to them more or less prevails. Now that we may be able to determine whether our lack of assurance proceeds from some natural cause or bodily distemper, we must inquire whether we formally endeavor to walk in all good conscience in the sight of God, to hate every false way, and make religion the great business of our life, so that we cannot assign any reigning sin as the cause of our present desponding frame, and also whether we have been diligent in performing the duty of self-examination and have been sensible that we stood in need of the Spirit's witness with ours in order to our arriving at a comfortable persuasion that we are in a state of grace. If as a result of these inquiries we cannot see any cause but the unavoidable infirmities to which we are daily liable, leading to this dejection of spirit, we may probably conclude that it arises from a distemper of the body, but in order to our determining this manner, we must further inquire whether some afflictive providence has not had an influence upon us to bring us into a melancholy temper, and whether our depression of spirit does not appear in what relates to our secular as well as our spiritual concerns, 
Now, if this is the case, though it be very afflictive, it is not attended with that guilt which it would be had it been occasioned by some presumptuous sin. In this case, too, there are other medicines to be used besides those which are of a spiritual nature and are contained in the gospel, but what these are is not our business in this place to determine. Number two, there are many sins which are the occasion of a person's being destitute of assurance. As all the troubles of life are brought upon us by sin, so all our doubts and fears arising from the lack of a comfortable sense or of an interest in the love of God. It pleases God in the method of his providence thus to deal with his people, that he may humble them for presumptuous sins, more especially those which are committed against light and conviction of conscience, that he may bring to remembrance their sins of omission or neglect to exercise those graces in which a life of faith consists, that they may feel the effect of their stupidity, obduracy, indifference, and carnal security, or their engaging in religious duties in their own strength without dependence on the spirit and grace of God, or a due sense of their inability to perform any duty in a right way. Or sometimes, as was formerly observed, they lack assurance because they do not practice self-examination, which is God's ordinance for the attaining of this privilege. Or if they do practice it, they neglect to give that glory to the Holy Spirit, which is due to him, by depending on his enlightening influence to bring them to a comfortable persuasion of their interest in Christ. Number three. Assurance of salvation is often weakened and intermitted through manifold temptations. Satan is very active in this manner, and shows his enmity against the interests of Christ and the souls of his people as much as lies in his power. So though it is impossible for him to ruin the soul by rooting out the grace which is implanted in it, yet he tries to disturb its peace and weakens its assurance, and if not prevented to hurry it into despair. In this case, the general design of his temptations is to represent God as a sin-revenging judge, a consuming fire, to present to our view the threatenings by which his wrath is revealed against sinners, and to endeavor to set aside the promises of the gospel from which alone relief may be had. Moreover, he puts us upon considering sin not only as heinously aggravated, and it may for the most part be so considered with justice, but also is altogether unpardonable, and at the same time pretends to insinuate to us that we are not elect, or that Christ did not die for us, and that therefore what he has done and suffered will not redound to our advantage. Now there is apparently the hand of Satan in this manner, inasmuch as he attempts by false methods of reasoning to persuade us that we are not in a state of grace, that God is an enemy to us, and that therefore our condition is desperate. Here he uses the arts of the old serpent that he may deceive us by drawing conclusions against ourselves from false premises. He induces us to reason that because we daily experience the internal workings of corrupt nature, which inclines us to many sins, both of omission and of commission, there is no room for us to expect mercy and forgiveness from God, from our barrenness also and our unprofitableness under the means of grace, our improvements not being proportioned to the obligations we have been laid under, or from our having great reason to charge ourselves with many declensions and backslidings which afford manner for deep humiliation, 
and should put us upon sincere repentance, he endeavors to persuade us that we are altogether destitute of special grace. Again, whenever we are unprepared or indisposed for the right performance of holy duties, and our affections are not suitably raised in them, but we grow obdurate, hard-hearted, remiss and careless, he puts us upon concluding that it is a vain thing for us to draw near to God, and that he has utterly rejected both our persons and our services. Or if we are not favored with immediate answer to prayer and sensible communion with God in the performance of that duty, he tempts us to infer that we shall never obtain the blessing we are pressing after, and that we may as well lay aside this duty and say, Why should I wait on the Lord any longer? If by this method he cannot discourage us from engaging in holy duties, he sometimes injects blasphemous thoughts or unbecoming conceptions of the divine majesty, which fill the soul with the greatest grief and uneasiness, that in consequence of these he might give us occasion to conclude that we sin in persisting in holy duties. By all these temptations, the devil endeavors to plunge us into the depths of despair. He tempts us also as to the purpose of God relating to the event of things, when we are led to determine that we are not of the elect. We come to this conclusion without sufficient grounds. In presenting the question to us, he deceives us by pursuing false methods of reasoning and puts us upon presuming to enter into those secret things which do not belong to us, or to infer that God has rejected us, because we deserve to be cast off by him for our sins, instead of giving diligence to make our calling an election sure. Now it is one thing not to be able to conclude that we are elected, but another thing to say that we are not so. The former is the consequence of our present doubts and desponding apprehensions concerning our state. The latter is plainly a temptation of Satan. This we are often subject to when we have lost that assurance of our interest in Christ which we once enjoyed. Number four. A believer's lack of assurance is for the most part attended with and arises from divine desertion, what they sometimes called spiritual desertion. Not that we are to suppose that God will cast off his people whom he has foreknown, whom he has effectually called and preserved up till now, so as to forsake them utterly. For to suppose this is inconsistent with his everlasting love and the promises of the covenant of grace which respect their salvation. What we understand by divine desertion is God's withdrawing his comforting presence and withholding the witness of his spirit to the work of grace in the soul. From that arise those doubts and fears which attend a lack of assurance. So God says to his people, For a small moment have I forsaken you. But, with great mercies, will I gather you. In this respect, they are destitute of God's comforting presence, so at the same time they may be favored with his supporting presence. And those powerful influences which are necessary to maintain the work of grace, which at present appears to be very weak and languishing. The next topic. The state of believers who lack assurance. We are thus led to consider the last thing mentioned in this answer, namely that though believers are thus described, they are not left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. This observation ought to be explained and considered with certain limitations, lest while on the one hand we assert that which affords manner of encouragement to believers, 
when they have some degree of hope. We should, on the other hand, throw discouragements in the way of others, who will be apt to imagine, when they are ready to sink into despair, that what they experience is wholly inconsistent with any direct act of faith. I did not say that no believer was ever so far deserted as to be left for a while to despair of his interest in Christ. For scripture and daily experience gives us examples of some, whose conversation in many respects discovers him to have had the true grace of God, whom God has been pleased for wise ends to leave to the terror of their own thoughts, and who have remained for some time in the depths of despair, while others have gone out of the world under a cloud, concerning whom there has been ground of hope that their state was safe. It is somewhat difficult, therefore, to determine what is meant in this answer by a believer's being kept from sinking into utter despair, if the meaning is a have supports of the Spirit of God, so as to be kept from relapsing into a state of unregeneracy in their despairing condition, that may easily be accounted for, or if the meaning is that believers are not generally given up to the greatest degree of despair, especially such as is inconsistent with the exercise of any grace that is not to be denied. I would rather say, however, that though a believer may have despairing apprehensions concerning a state, and though the guilt of sin may lie upon him like a great weight, so as to depress his spirits, yet he shall not sink into endless misery. For though darkness may continue for a night, light and joy shall come in the morning. Accordingly, though there are many who are far from heaven assurance, yet they are at some times favored with a small glimmering of hope, which keeps them from utter despair. Again, if they are in deep despair, yet they are not so far left as not to desire grace, though they conclude themselves to be destitute of it, or not to lament the loss of those comforts and inability to exercise those graces which once they thought themselves possessed of. Further, a believer, when in a despairing way, is notwithstanding enabled by a direct act of faith to give himself up to Christ, though he cannot see his interest in him, and to long for those experiences and comforts which he once enjoyed. And when he is at the worst, he can say with Job, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Also in this case, a person is generally such a degree of the presence of God that he is enabled to justify him in all of his dealings with him, and lay the blame of all the troubles which he is under on himself. And this is attended with shame and confusion of face, self-abhorrence and godly sorrow. Finally, despairing believers have, notwithstanding such a presence of God with them, as keeps them from abandoning his interest, or running with sinners into all excess of riot, which would give occasion to others to conclude that they never had the truth of grace. From what has been said concerning true believers being destitute of assurance, and yet having at the same time some degree of the presence of God, we may draw several inferences. First, this is not inconsistent with what was said concerning a believer's perseverance and grace, yet it must be considered with this limitation, that though the truth of grace shall not be lost, the comforts and evidences of it may and often are. Again, this should put us upon circumspect walking and watchfulness against presumptuous sins, 
which, as was formerly observed, are often the occasion of the loss of assurance and also on the exercise of a faith of reliance on Christ for maintaining the acts of grace as well as restoring its comforts. Further, this should instruct believers what to do when destitute of the privilege of assurance. We have observed that the lack of assurance is attended with divine desertion, which is generally occasioned by the sins we commit. Therefore, let us say with Job, Show me, O God, wherefore you contend with me. Let me know what are those secret sins by which I have provoked you to leave me destitute of your comforting presence. Enable me to be affected with and humbled for them and unfeignedly to repent of them and to exercise that faith in Christ which may be a means of my recovering a hope of assurance of which I am at present destitute. Again, what has been said concerning a believer's being sometimes destitute of assurance? should put us upon sympathizing with those who are in a despairing way, and using our endeavors to administer comfort to them, rather than to censor them or conclude them to be in an unregenerate state, as Job's friends did to him, because the hand of God had touched him and he was destitute of its comforting presence. Finally, from what has been said concerning that degree of the presence of God which believers enjoy, which has a tendency to keep them from utter despair, at least from sinking into perdition, how disconsolate soever their case may be at present, we may be induced to admire the goodness and faithfulness of God in his dealings with his people, who will not lay more on them than he will enable them to bear, though they are comfortless and hopeless. Yet they shall not be destroyed, and in the end they shall be satisfied with God's loving kindness. And when the clouds are all dispersed, they shall have a bright and glorious day in His immediate presence, where there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand, where there are pleasures forevermore.